0: Guys, ever had a circumstance where your feelings so overwhelmed you that you couldn't focus on what the reality was? Everything inside of you was telling you a certain truth, and no matter what people said to you or what you saw, the truth inside of you kind of overwhelmed everything else. ever have one of those? Remember when I was playing basketball when I was about 12? Uh, I was about six foot two. Yes, I was and I was about 135 pounds. So when I turned sideways, I disappeared. And I remember I had just started playing basketball, and I am not the most coordinated person to begin with, but it was really kind of rough to start. I was not the greatest basketball player. And there was a guy in our town, I lived in Hillsborough at the time, and he was amazing. He was this man-child, this phenom on the court. He could dunk at 12 years old, not kidding you. He was absolutely amazing. And I remember playing against him the first time and just getting absolutely trounced. Just killed. And I went home distraught and my dad said to me who my dad played college basketball for the University of Idaho. He said, "Hans, you just keep working hard and eventually the rest of the pack will fall away." And I thought that was good truth at the time, right? And I held on to it, but the problem was every time I ran into somebody that was bigger than me, I lost that truth. And see, us tall guys were total hypocrites, right? We get so sick and tired of everybody asking, you know, how tall we are. I really don't, actually. I kind of like the attention. I'm a youngest child, so go ahead. Keep feeding my ego. But see, we're hypocrites because we get tired of people asking us, but then we see somebody our size or bigger and we're like, oh my goodness, you're giant. What's wrong with you, right? Kind of like how people do to, to me sometimes, right? And so anytime I'd see somebody who was six foot ten or or bigger, I'd be like, oh, you freak of nature, what's wrong with you, you know? And I'd get kind of scared, and I remember more than one coach telling me, play like you're six foot ten, because I'd kind of curl up and I'd play like this. And no matter what the truth was outside of me, no matter how high I got in basketball, no no matter how many games we won, no matter how good I got, I always had this fear inside of me Anytime I got next to somebody bigger than me. The feeling inside became my reality, and the feeling outside, the reality outside, didn't ever cut through. In other words, my circumstances overpowered what I knew to be true. Get that? My circumstances overpowered what I knew to be true. Maybe this happens to you in relationships. Maybe it happens to you in finances. Maybe it happens to you when your car breaks down on the side of the road. Something inside of you takes hold and says, I have truth, and that truth overpowers the reality of outside of me. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, this makes a lot of sense in our, our society. Why? Because we're very individualistic and relativistic. Let me, say, uh, let me explain what I mean there. In previous civilizations, in previ- previous cultures, truth was always outside of yourself. It was in the village elders, in the books of wisdom, in the community That surrounded you. It wasn't individualistic. It came from the people around you. Yet in our day, the individual has become the center of all truth. Relativism reigns. It's okay what you believe and what I believe, because what I believe is truth and what you believe is truth. And we all know that's not the definition of truth. Truth is what is. Right? It's pretty simple. What happens when your internal state takes over, your mind, your emotions take over, and you fight against the reality outside of you is that individualism and relativism reigns because your truth suddenly becomes the truth. And in our society, and even I would say within the church, the idea that reality is outside of ourselves, reality is something that is and it's outside of each one of us, that's offensive to us in our culture, isn't it? That is the greatest sin is to say there is a truth and you don't have it. You have to learn it. And so this is what the whole walk of being a Christian is. The Bible calls it taking your thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ and it's a massive part of what walking as a Christian is. I found that often with myself and with many other people who claim Christianity as their own, uh, they say I'm a Christian but then basically they walk in this path of So now whatever I believe, whatever I think, that's got to be the truth. No, it's always going back to the Word and saying, what is the truth? Not what my truth is, what is the truth? And we run our beliefs through the filter of the Word. And so throughout the history of the people of Israel, as we've seen in the Bible, they do this same thing. Very similar to us. No matter what God does for them, we turn the page and what happens How many times have you done that? You've read the Old Testament stories and you see, man, walls of water in the Red Sea, the breath of God saving the people. They go through, the chariots of Pharaoh are destroyed and then five seconds later, are we there yet? I need water, I need food. Moses, did you bring us out here to die? And I don't know about you, but I've claimed self-righteousness more than once when I go, what is wrong with you guys? You just saw God act. Anybody else do that? Am I the only sinner? Okay, there's a few of us sinners in here. That's good. And this is what has happened over and over again. But see, that's why God told them, hey, fathers, you're supposed to remind your children. You're supposed to tell your children the truth. Remember the truth. Remember the truth. Remember the truth. That's what fathers were to do their sons and pass it on down. And as we will see in our text today, the bedrock of the Israelite community had become the belief that God was faithful. That's what they were supposed to pass on down. Stories aren't just there for fun or entertainment. They're there to speak of the character of God. And the entire reason behind the Torah, the law of Israel, the entire reason behind the festal system and sacrifices and all of the festivals that went with it was to remind the people of the faithfulness of God. As we'll see in our text today, somehow, over and over, there was doubt of God's faithfulness. And Ahaz, who we see today, he led the people in losing sight of the truth. Their truth internally overwhelmed their truth externally. We can put it this way. Ahaz's pressing circumstances were overpowering God's faithful promises. Ahaz's pressing circumstances were overpowering God's faithful promises. If you're like me, you like things shorter than that, so let's go with this one. Without faith, we fall. Without faith, we fall. What we will see throughout the story today is Ahaz's circumstances outside of himself and and what he was feeling was overpowering God's faithful promises. And the reality of what we're going to see summed up is this. Without faith, faith in God, faith in his plan, a knowledge of what's rolling out in front of us, without that faith, we fall. So let's take a look first at Ahaz's pressing circumstances. Right there in Isaiah 7, starting in verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezan, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. But they could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Maybe you can associate with that. Maybe you've had that moment where your emotions are playing so heavily upon you that you feel like you're being driven in two, tossed to and fro, your emotions are taking over. See, Uzziah was a prosperous king, and we just finished looking at the vision of God that happened in the the time of his death. But we fast forward here about 15 or 16 years into the reign of Ahaz, his grandson. Now, how would we know that? We don't, unless we look at the rest of the Bible, and we will today. And the problem was was that Uzziah, while he did follow Yahweh, we read last time that he left all the high places in, in place. All the places where people went to worship the gods that were not Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, he left those in place, and that idolatry started to creep in. And I've said this before, but especially to those of us who are parents in the room, apathy will beget heresy. If we are apathetic in our walk as parents, our children will never rise above us but by the grace of God, and that miracle can happen. But more likely, they will follow our example, and they will set the bar lower than we did. Apathy will beget heresy. And this is what happened among the people of Judah. So uh, turn with me, we'll come back here, but turn with me to 2 Kings. And we're going to be in 2 Kings 15 and 16 for a little bit. 2 Kings 15 and 16. we We're going to read a lot of text today, but it's going to really help you understand what's going on in Isaiah 7. 2 Kings 15, and we're going to be in verses 32 through 37. 2 Kings 15, 32. In the second year of Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done. See? He didn't rise above him. He did what Uzziah did. Nevertheless, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? In those days, the Lord began to send reason the king of Syria and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, against Judah. Jotham slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father, and Ahaz his son reigned in his place. The narrator here is trying to tell us: hey, there is a problem going on. There is a root of faithlessness in the Israelite people, in the in the people of Judah specifically. And that's running through the fathers to the sons and the leaders are not leading the people in fully following Yahweh. And so because of this, in those days, who sent Reason, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia? Who sent them? Yahweh did. Yahweh took the enemies of Judah and sent them for purposes of discipline. See, in these days, there was massive threat of war against Judah. And as the whispers grew louder, Ahaz, his son, took over in his place. Years of apathetic worship of the parents gave way to pure hedonism. The people were completely against God, and they didn't even know it. Now let's take a look at 2 Kings 16, verse 1. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Ramalia, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. There you go, guys. Any of you 20-year-olds? Right? should apply for kingship. And notice what he did. He reigned for 16 years, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Now, this is shorthand for the fact that they basically got rid of the worship of Yahweh, and they built altars to all of the pagan gods from the peoples around them. See, Israel had already been trounced and was already being fought by Assyria, because they had already gone to paganism and worship of other gods. Notice what else he does. And this is where it gets kind of sick, okay? So this is a little bit R-rated here, but just follow with me. He even burned his son as an offering. That means exactly what it says. Rather than sacrifice an animal, he took his own child and put that child on the offering. Fire. Fire. Now, in order to sacrifice any kind of animal, its throat has to be slit first. I don't say that to be gross. I say that to tell you how far gone Ahaz was by this point. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord, Yahweh, drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. No matter where he could, where he was, he wanted to do an offering to the pagan gods and he was having all sorts of crazy, nasty worship practices, again, shorthand for under every green tree, was speaking of the nature practices of the nature cults that involved sexuality in their worship. It was disgusting. All sorts of garbage was going on here. And you think, how on earth did this happen? Well... From the time of Uzziah to the time of Ahaz was 15 years. 15 years of apathy, half-heartedness, and mixture. And this is where we land. It doesn't take long, guys. Without faith, we fall. Without faith, we fall. Now, let me broaden the picture a little bit here. Why don't you go with me to the right to 2 Chronicles 28. Just a little bit to the right in your Bible. You'll go past 1 Chronicles and into 2 Chronicles. And go to 2 Chronicles 28. This is the other place we're going to be for a while. We're going to go back and forth a little bit. Second Chronicles 28, starting in verse 1. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. Okay, so we're going to see a lot of the same information, but notice the, the additional information here. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even made metal images for the Baals, okay? Those are the other gods. And he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his sons, notice there's plural this time, as an offering, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on high places and on hills and on every green tree, under every green tree. Okay, we got that part. Now, look forward to verse 19. Same chapter, verse 19. Second Chronicles twenty eight verse nineteen. For the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz king of Israel, for he had made Judah act sinfully, and had been very unfaithful to the Lord. So uh, Tiglath-Pilaser, king of Assyria, came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. For Ahaz took a portion from the house of the Lord and the house of the king and of the princes and gave tribute to the king of Assyria. But it did not help him. What's happening here? Here's what's going on. When you look at the land of Canaan, it's very small. I've said this before. Israel itself is uh, basically from, uh, it's like the western portion of, of uh, uh, Oregon. I-5 to the coast uh, from basically the northern border of Oregon down to about where Eugene is. Okay, it's tiny. And in this whole section, you see the kingdom of Israel up there and the kingdom of Judah, and then there are some other surrounding nations. All of these were tiny. And what they were trying to do was they were trying to stay away from this giant kingdom. You see Judah is the little brown dot down there near Jerusalem. The Assyrian Empire was massive. And this small group of nations said, we can't fight these guys alone, so we got to gather together. And they were all together. Syria, up there in the the, um, blue and, and down into the brown there, they were aligning with Israel because all of them were worshiping the same gods, and they said, Judah, we need you to fight against Assyria. But because of the bad blood between uh, Judah and Israel, they weren't going to do it. And so they have this beast of the east, the Assyrian Empire, breathing down their necks, coming towards them. And they're scared. So, when you have two bad choices, what do you do? Well, we've all heard it for the last six months, you choose the lesser of two evils. Rather than stay true to who they follow, they said, "Eh, we got to go with the lesser two evils. Let's see. Uh, I don't like these guys. I know what I'm against. I don't know what I'm for. I know what I'm against. So I'm going to choose going with Assyria. And so what he did, what Ahaz did, is he paid out of the temple treasury money that was meant for the feeding of the people and the worship of God. He used that money and he took it and gave it to Nineveh, to the Assyrian empire, to try and get them on his side. Is that going to work, guys? Can you ever appease evil? No, you absolutely cannot. And so basically what had happened here is he had adopted a whatever mentality, whatever works. Look at verse 22. In the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord, this same king Ahaz. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him and said, Because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and all of Israel. And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God, cut them in pieces, the vessels of the house of God, notice the repetition there, Uh, the vessels of the house of God and he shut up the doors of the house of the Lord and he made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem in every city of Judah he made high places to make offerings to other gods provoking the anger of the Lord the God of his fathers now the rest of his acts and all his ways from first to last behold they are written in the books of the kings of Judah and Israel and they had slept with his fathers and they buried him in the city in Jerusalem for they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel why? because he was so wicked he was so awful he went from left to right, swaying wherever the wind drove him to figure out what worked. Okay, well, the Syrians, they just trounced us, so let's go with their God. I'm going to worship their God for a bit. Well, I don't like what they stand for, so I'm going to go over to Assyria, and I'm going to worship their God. I'm going to shut the doors of the temple. This is not good stuff. And unfortunately, we, the church, adopt much of the same mentality. In the 1980s, many of you were around for it. The church went, wait a minute, marketing is working like gangbusters out there. Let's start marketing. We need to bring Starbucks into the church. We need to watch movies at the beginning of every sermon. We need to make it entertaining. Are you not entertained? No, this is for preaching, guys. This is the word of God. We don't come here to entertain. We come here to be changed from the inside out. It doesn't work when we just adopt whatever works. We know what works, and it's the truth of God. And so we hear, here we have Ahaz, double-minded and weak, taking on the worship methods of the Syrians because they were victorious, yet not fully aligning with them, moving back and forth. It was truly not that Ahaz was for one or the other. It was just he was going to go with what felt right at the moment. You see, without faith, we fall. If our current circumstances or the internal feeling we have is what tells us truth, we will fall. Without faith in the truth, God's word, we will fall. And Ahaz did. He fell into disobedience of even the greatest commandments. Guys, if you want to know one commandment, you ever seen the Jay Leno thing? I guess that's dating me now, but where they go out on the street. Who's the guy that does it now? The street in New York? We're holy, we don't watch TV anymore. Um, Never mind. Jay Leno used to go out and he used to ask people questions and he would ask New Yorkers, what are the Ten Commandments? And people would be like, I don't know. If you want to remember one, just take one, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Just go with that one. That'll, That'll hold you pretty steady for most of your life. He even forgot that one. And so, while the immediate gamble may have worked and there was relative peace for a moment, as we'll see in Isaiah 7, in essence, Ahaz has sol- had sold his soul for a temporary solution. And anytime we go with what our circumstances or our feeling tells us, that's what we're doing. We're going with a temporary solution. The ultimate solution for the people of Judah was repentance and worship of the true and living God, but they let a slow creep of idolatry into the mix. Now, knowing the backstory, let's look back at Isaiah. Turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 7. And look at what it says in verse 2 there. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Israel, or Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. You tell me. What did the pressing circumstances tell Ahaz? You need to be scared. See, don't hear me wrong. I'm not trying to say that our feelings are not powerful. And that our circumstances are not powerful. Usually they are. In this case, I don't know about you, but if I have two armies breathing down my neck, I will be fearful just like Ahaz. But that's where we need to go back to the word. Ahaz's pressing circumstances were overpowering God's faithful promises. And without faith, without the knowledge of God's truth, Ahaz and the people of Judah fell. Ahaz had his eyes so fixed on these things that he missed out On this, he missed out on God's faithful promises. In fact, he probably knew them. He'd grown up in Judah. There were people around that knew the word, but he had so bought into what his feelings and his circumstances were telling him that he forgot God's faithful promises. Let's take a look at verse 3 there of Isaiah 7. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sheer Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of reason in Syria and the son of Ramaliah. Because Syria, with Ephraim, the son of Ramalia, has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tobiel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is reason, and within 65 years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia." Let's pause there. Ahaz was out by this pool. And the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. And what was Ahaz doing? You can just picture him. This pool was outside the city walls. It wasn't until his son Hezekiah that they brought the water source for the people. Remember, they had no faucets. You didn't turn the water and it just came through nicely. You had a pool that would feed the rest of the, uh, the wells in the city. And it was outside the walls. And so Ahaz is out there getting ready for battle wondering, How do we protect our water? You can imagine him going, Oh my goodness, rubbing his forehead, hand over his mouth. What are we going to do about the water? What are we going to do? You ever felt that way? The bill comes in the mail you weren't expecting. What are we going to do? Maybe somebody in your life breaks off relationship with you. What am I going to do? Something is crumbling and you go, what? What is going to happen? My heart is shivering and quaking just like the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And so Isaiah was sent to talk to him. Because the reality was, in man's reality, this was the truth, was that Ahaz should be very scared. But with God, fear isn't even a question. Left on his own with just human means. It was only destruction that faced him. But with God, there was something else. There was a different reality. And God tells him this in three ways. The first one is through his son, Sha'ar Yashuv. Or in the, the English there, Shir Jashub. Okay? And his name means this, a remnant shall return. Can you imagine? Dad, what's my meaning in life? Uh, I'm going to use you one time for an example, and then have fun with the rest of your life, right? This kid's entire purpose for existing was to speak prophecy to Ahaz. So he brings along his son, and he says, We named him this. It means a remnant shall return. Why? Because God is faithful. And even though we might be destroyed slightly, a remnant will always return. God's will for the house of David will always win out. That was the first thing that he used to communicate to Ahaz. The second thing was look at what he says. Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. You could translate it this way. I I believe it's this way in the NIV. Keep calm and don't be afraid. Many of you have the t-shirts, right? Keep calm and whatever. Or you have the bumper stickers. God invented that, by the way. Okay? Keep calm. Don't be afraid. Why would you be afraid? I'm still in control, he's saying. Don't let your heart be weak. This seems pretty heartless, right? God isn't empathizing with his people. No, guys, we read this in the wrong tone. He's reassuring him. When we have to take our kids to the doctor, Kelly and I, we know that it's going to hurt slightly. Little poke, right? We tell them. And then they sit there on the table, and we sit with them, and we reassure them it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. All right. Don't let your heart be afraid. Inside, they're quivering like crazy. What is this crazy doctor going to do to me? Right? I mean, you even mentioned the word doctor around our children, and you think they just went through the biggest trauma of their life. Well, for them, they did. But we reassure them that's what God's doing. He's saying, Don't be afraid. I'm your God, I'm the one that's watching over you. And thirdly, He reminds him that He's the authority. Thirdly, he reminds them that he is the authority. He says, a remnant will return. He says, be calm, don't be afraid. And the third thing he says is that he is the authority. These verses in verse verse 7 and 8, basically saying, hey, the head of this person is this person, and the head of this uh, country is this city. What he's saying is, look at their authorities, and who is it that's the authority of these various places? He's saying for Syria, it's Damascus, and Damascus is led by reason. For Ephraim or Israel, it's Samaria, and it's led by the son of Ramalia. He doesn't even give him a name. He just says he's the son of somebody else, right? The inference here is who's in authority? Who's the one that's got this under control, guys? These guys might be running their countries, but I am the God of the whole earth, God might say. Now, it's ironic. We miss this in the English, but look at what they're trying to do. Look at verse 6. It says, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel. Now we think, okay, son of Tabeel, whatever. No, in the Hebrew, that name comes from two words, the good of God, tov el, okay? They're trying to set up someone who is a worshiper of a different god, Now, we just kind of, for some reason in our culture of mixture, we just brush right past that, but we have to remember, how does God feel about that? Is that a good thing or a bad thing, to set up a king that worships a completely different God? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Bad thing. Not good. We think, oh, no big deal, you know, it's just just another religion. No, them is fighting words, okay? Who is the God that Ahaz worships? Let me remind you who he is. You don't have to turn there, but in Exodus 15, here's the song that Moses sings after God destroys the armies of Pharaoh in protection of the Israelites. Just hear the words. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing, glory, uh, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation This is my God and I will praise him, my father's God. And I will exalt him. The Lord, in the Hebrew it's Yahweh, is a man of war. The Lord, Yahweh, is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Yahweh, glorious in power, your right hand, O Yahweh, shatters the enemy. Does this seem like a God who floats on top of the ground in Birkenstocks and a toga? Yahweh is your name, and Yahweh is a man of war. Who's he warring against? I think sometimes we as Christians think he's warring against us. We're so fearful of him. No, he's fighting on our behalf. Against who? Against all the philosophies and doctrines and ideals of the world that are against truth. He's fighting against the other lowercase g gods of the world. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them, God says. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead into the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Do you think that would have helped Ahaz in the moment if he'd read that? Do you think that truth would have been enough for him to quench his fears and say, I know what I feel and it's fear, but my God stands for his people. See, his present pressing circumstances were overpowering God's faithful promises. Without faith, we fall. And this is the statement that Isaiah finishes with. Look there at the second half of verse 9, Isaiah 7, verse 9, second half. He says, If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And so here we come to the last major point. We come to a longstanding truth. Without faith, we fall the you here is plural he's speaking to the entire house of david not just ahaz he's speaking to the people of god another wonderful translation of this same verse or same portion of text is in the nasb if you do not believe you surely shall not last i actually almost like that one a little bit better if you do not believe believe on what believe on the faithfulness of god you will not last. Without faith, we fall. Now, what's interesting is in the Hebrew, the word faith here in the ESV, or the word believe in the NASB, they're not literally there, but the translation puts them there to get the point across. What are we to have faith in? What are we to be firm in? All the truth that's come up to that point. Everything that Isaiah is telling Ahaz, a remnant will return. It's part of God's plan. Don't be afraid. Be calm. Why? Because God is in control. Who's the authority, Ahaz? God's the one that is the power. Does this mean everything's going to go hunky-dory for Ahaz and it's going to be smooth sailing? No, not necessarily. Sometimes God comes and destroys an entire army without any battle whatsoever. And other times he calls for us to get some nicks and bruises in the midst. Sometimes he calls for us to lose our very lives. Does this mean that He is not a good, faithful God? No, it means that he works in different ways with different people at different times. But overall, eternally, long-term, what we can see is this. That God reigns. That he is true. That he is faithful and he will bring about his promises. That he is who he says he is, that God is faithful to his promises. Now we as Christians immediately jump up and we say, amen. Amen, brother. We say, oh, we got this. We're Christians. We understand about faith. And many of us have been taught that This wrong philosophy and wrong theology that if we just have enough faith, we've commandeered the word and turned it upside down and turned it into wishful thinking. Faith has become wishful thinking rather than trusting in the faithfulness of the promises and plan of God. In other words, we think if we just have enough faith, we'll get what we want. I've heard that so many times from well-meaning Christians, and it's so heartbreaking because it's false theology. It's a veiled prosperity gospel. See, what that's telling the world around us is the outcome of faith is possessions, property, a world framed as you desire it to be. Just have enough faith and you'll get that job. Just have enough faith and you'll get that boyfriend or girlfriend. Just have enough faith, you'll get that house, you'll get that whatever, A on the exam. The God of the Israelites, the God that we serve, Jesus Christ, is not our cosmic ATM with a no-withdrawal limit. He is not one who just gives us what we want. He is one who stays true to his plan and his promises. Now, there is truth throughout Scripture that God does provide for the needs of individuals, so please do not hear me today as this idea that God is far from us and not willing to hear us. He will hear you, and in many cases, he will answer you in a way that is better than you ever thought. But the overwhelming idea of Scripture the overwhelming storyline of the Bible has nothing to do with our individual concerns and it has everything to do with the restoration of the world. That is what the majority of the Bible is about, a kingdom-wide, earth-wide restoration. And see, whenever our current circumstances overwhelm us so much that God's faithfulness to his world starts to disappear We know we've strayed off track. So what do we do? What is is our application as Christians today for when we do have those moments? Because they will come. And do not believe that you are in sin when you feel overwhelmed by those feelings or those circumstances. That is humanity. That's normal to be overwhelmed. In fact, that's most of what I do is sit with people and watch them be overwhelmed and my heart hurts for them and breaks for them. And we should come alongside those people when they're in those moments. And here's the key, guys. Don't just quote Scripture at them. Remind them with your presence the truth of God. And then as you have the ability and the time and the door is open, give them truth. Don't beat them with it. Here are the two things that we must remember when we feel overwhelmed with our circumstances and feelings. Number one, we need to remember... Who is God in light of God's word? What does he tell us about himself? We could go back to any number of the covenant promises of God, but just to keep it simple this morning, let's just refer back to what I just talked about in Exodus 15. He is a God who says, I am at war against the gods that want to kill you, that want to destroy you. We could turn to another one in in 2 Samuel. For the sake of time, I won't go there today, but we could turn to where God promises David that he will have offspring that reign on the throne. That enough. That should have been enough for Ahaz to say, I know that we're not going to get overtaken to the point of complete destruction because God promised that we would have someone on the throne. Does God in his word promise you you will get that job, promise you you will get that boyfriend or girlfriend, promise you you will get that home? No, he does not and yet somehow we've commandeered those things as promises for the kingdom of heaven. That's not the truth. He promises you that you will have trial and tribulation and that he will be there with you fighting in the midst, leading you in victory over your enemies. Not the person that upsets you at the water cooler, over the eternal enemies of death, sin, and hell and all of the brokenness that we see around ourselves. We have to remember who God is in light of his word. And then we have to remember who we are in light of God's word. Now these seem very simple, but guys, you sit with someone who's in the midst of pain, and you see how simple it is to remember these things. So here's the key. We have to practice these things, remembering these things, when we're not in the midst of overwhelming circumstances, because then it will be such habit that it kicks in in the midst of those moments of pain. We have to remember who we are, who I am, in light of God's word. See, the people of Judah needed to remember who they were. Look at Isaiah 7-2 there. You should still be in Isaiah 7. Isaiah 7-2. And look at who he calls them. When the house of David... What did God promise to David? He said, your household will last forever. Your household will last forever. There will always be a king on your throne. Now, he was obviously being prophetic about Jesus, but what if Ahaz had actually bought into that? Would he have been so fearful? We'll never know. But what we do know is that we can trust that God will be faithful. Why did Judah fall? for the very same reasons that we fall. Here's the three pitfalls I'm going to give you today to stay out of so that you can remember who God is and who you are in light of his word. Number one, I think the biggest pitfall that we fall into as Christians is we don't know the truth of God. We don't know the truth of God. Okay, show of hands. Show of hands, how many of you when you got a car immediately before driving it, opened up the manual and read the entire thing. How many of you did that? (laughs) Yeah, one time, yeah, okay. All right. How many of you, when you got that new DVD player or that new TV, you busted out the user's manual? Okay, let's just go easier than that. How many of you, when you went to Ikea, actually tried to read the instructions before you put it together? There's a few, okay. A few. But that's only because it has no words and it's put together by Norwegians. That's the only reason you did it, right? And I'm Scandinavian. I can say that, okay? No, it's, it's our society. We buy the car. It's ours. We run it. Who cares what the user's manual says? And that's crept over into Christianity. I'm a Christian. Awesome. What is it you believe? I have no idea, but I'm going to heaven. Tell me what the gospel is. This is the scariest question I ask most Christians. Why is it scary? Because beads of sweat start dripping down their face. Jesus, he died in the resurrection and um, heaven. What do you believe, guys? You believe everything that's in here. How many of you have even read 2 Kings or 2 Chronicles? How many of you have even... Gone to the depths of what this says. What you believe does not matter. This is what you believe. We don't even know the truth. I hear people say, oh, how's it going in your, your study? Um, you know, it's, I'm not reading as much as I'd like to. That is the dumbest statement, by the way. You're the one that determines how much you get to read. If you'd like to, you'd be reading that much. Say it the truth. I have too many other priorities. Or it scares me. I don't even know where to start. If you'd like to, then start and find somebody in the body that's already read parts of it so they can help you understand. Come to church on Sunday so I can help you understand. Read the truth. One of the biggest pitfalls to falling into being overwhelmed by our circumstances and our feelings is we don't even know the truth so that the truth inside us has to become the truth. How do you know that God spoke it to you? It's in the Word. Secondly, second big pitfall we fall into. We may know it, but we don't believe the truth. When our circumstances press in, it flexes our understanding of the truth, and we have to ask the question, do we really believe this? If it happens, you start to realize that maybe you don't believe it. I can't tell you the number of times in my life where that question has come into my mind. I don't know whether it's by the Spirit or just by me thinking through it. If I actually believe this, then I have to do this. Starting this church was one of those things. I feel like God's called me to preach the Word. I believe the gospel's supposed to go out. I think I'm supposed to go do this. If I actually believe this. Tithing, that was one of those things. The Bible says throughout the entire thing, be generous. Be generous. If I actually believe this, i got to do it. Loving one another, that's kind of written in here a few places, right? If I actually believe this, I have to do it. I can't stay in isolation away from community anymore. See, we read this and then we don't believe it because what we feel tells us something different. One of the biggest reasons that community breaks down in the midst of church is what? People start to create narratives in their own head about other people in the church and it starts to pull them back. The truth is, you're loved. And the truth is, you're going to have conflict. And the truth is that intimacy comes out of conflict. Do we believe what it says? Don't give in. If you get to a place where you realize, man, I don't know if I do believe this stuff, don't give in. Don't throw up your hands and go, oh, I must not believe. No, you're at the same point every one of us has gotten to, which is, do I believe it? And my hope is for you is that you say absolutely and you press forward. The third big pitfall is this. Maybe we know the truth, but then we start to twist it to our own designs and we create a false truth. Maybe we lay the American prosperity gospel over the top of the word and we create false truths like this. If one has enough faith, they can have life turn out the way they want it. Or God is meant to make my life happy, healthy, and prosperous, and then when I die, I get to go to the good place called heaven. These are veiled prosperity statements. Or maybe it isn't a completely false truth, but merely one that we read out of the word and twist it out of context. And apply it to our dreams and hopes so that we think, oh, this must be true. No. Many of the promises stated in here, you have to read in context or you're going to be sorely disappointed. You see, in this life, as I said, God promises us trial. He promises us a war zone. But yet, in the midst, we know who's victorious. You know that you can trust God's faithfulness. How do we know this, folks? Well, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to take chapters 9 through 12 of Isaiah. And if you've read ahead or you know this section of Scripture over and over again, it tells us how we know God is faithful, because it prophesies of someone named Jesus. Over and over again, long before, 700 years before Jesus came, God gave a word to Isaiah to state that there will be a baby named Yeshua, which means salvation in Hebrew. He would be born in the tiny town of Bethlehem and he would grow into a man. He would give his entire life without sin to show us the truth of who God is in human form. So, and then one day he would be taken against his own will, but at the same time voluntarily to die for our sins, be brutally beaten and torn on our behalf to pay the penalty of our sin to become sin for us and to die so that we could be in relationship with the Father once again. And then he would resurrect three days later in a show of victory over sin and death and the worldly system that killed him. He would show victory over every pressing circumstance that tells us that God is not faithful. In doing so, God would prove faithful to every promise that he has ever made to mankind. See, here's the truth, guys. If you ever think that God has broken a promise to you, you had a misunderstanding of what he's promised you. That one hit home, didn't it? I just saw about 30 people nodding their heads. If you believe that the promises of God have failed you, you had a misunderstanding of what he promised you. He promised you, his son, and boy, did he deliver. God is faithful, amen? Our God is faithful. You see, this is faith, not to trust in your pressing circumstances or overwhelming feelings, but to trust the faithful heart of God the Father that he will bring restoration. The Bible says faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Not the hopes we have in the material world, but the hopes we have of the kingdom being restored and the knowledge, the conviction that it will happen. And when we stand firm in the faith, it will be amazing how we can stand in the middle of a broken and perverse generation and speak the heart of God in love and righteousness and justice. Let me turn you to one more place. Go back to 2 Chronicles 28. You were just there. 2 Chronicles 28. We're going to finish with one story here. In the midst of all this battling, in the midst of all this fighting, in the midst of Ahaz completely falling, we already read how he took a portion from the temple and it did not help him. He fell. In the midst of Israel rebelling and in the midst of Judah rebelling, we have this odd story. Never ever pass by a story, it's in here for a reason. Take a look at verse 8. Of chapter 28. Second Chronicles 28, verse 8. What's been going on here is the men of Israel are coming down into Judah, taking people captive, ripping them out, taking their women, turning them into slaves, killing people. 120,000 from Judah had been killed in one day, men of valor. Now it says in verse 8, the men of Israel took captive 200,000 of their relatives, women, sons, and daughters In other words, they went into Judah, the people that they were supposed to be in unity with, they took them captive and drug them out. They also took much spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria. That's in in Israel. But a prophet of the Lord was there, one who was sticking strong to the truth of God in the midst of a forsaken generation, whose name was Obed. And he went out to meet the army that came to Samaria and said to them, Behold, because the Lord, the God of your fathers, he's speaking of Yahweh, Was angry with Judah, he gave them into your hand. But you have killed them in a rage that has reached up to heaven. In other words, you overstepped your bounds. And now you intend to subjugate the people of Judah and Jerusalem, male and female, as your slaves. Have you not sins of your own against the Lord your God? In other words, guys, watch out because he's going to destroy us too because we're not repentant at all. And he would. He would use Assyria to destroy them. Now hear me, this man of God says, send back the captives from your relatives whom you have taken for the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. And certain chiefs also of the men of Ephraim, Azariah, the son of Johanan, Berachiah the son of a name I'm not going to pronounce, Jehezekiah, the son of Shalom, and Amasa, the son of Had- Hadlai, stood up against those who were coming from the war. So these men in Israel who are part of Israel stood up against their generation, against the people around them, against the society that was worshiping false gods and said to them, you shall not bring the captives in here for you propose to bring upon us guilt against the Lord in addition to our present sins and guilt. For our guilt is already great and there is fierce fierce wrath against the Lord. So the armed men left the captives and the spoil before the princes and all the assembly. Notice what they did. And the men who have been mentioned by name that means God is honoring them. Rose and took the captives, and with the spoil, they clothed all who were naked among them. They clothed them. They gave them sandals, provided them with food and drink. They anointed them. And carrying all the feeble among them on donkeys, they brought them to their kinsfolk at Jericho, the city of palm trees. Then they returned. To Samaria. These named leaders, these chiefs, put Ahaz to shame. The one that was supposed to be leading was put to shame by tribal leaders. What was it that the people were supposed to do for the world? What was it that God's people were supposed to do? Let me remind you look up here at the screen. This is from Genesis 18 19. We've beaten this one into the ground. What does God say to Abraham? For I have chosen him, meaning Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness, and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. These men, in the midst of a perverse generation, where their government had gone completely nuts and was completely against God, where their very leader showed no signs of morality or truth, this should be hitting home for us. These people who were God's people stood up against their president or king, stood up against the society of the day, said, we are not content choosing from the lesser of two evils. We stand in God's camp, and we will serve righteousness and justice. They weren't going to undo the government. They weren't going to change the society, but they, because of their faith and their knowledge of who God was, they stood firm in the midst of darkness. You see, without faith, we fall. But if we have faith and a knowledge of the truth of God, we can stand firm in the midst of anything that comes our way. And in doing so, we are a light to the peoples that shine them towards the truth of God's character. That's who we're to be. We shine for them the heart of Jesus in the midst of brokenness and perversion. And maybe... Just maybe there's somebody in here today who's feeling the same thing. Maybe your pressing circumstances are overwhelming you. And it's so loud. Your feelings and what's surrounding you has become so loud that you're deaf almost to the truth of God's faithfulness. The point is, is what we do today is the same as we do every Sunday. It's to point you back to God's truth to point you back to the truth of God's faithfulness. Everything we do at this church is meant to point you back to God's faithfulness, primarily in the giving of the Father giving his Son to us and giving us his Spirit to be unified and dwell with him and with one another. What you individually might be going through right now is probably one of the hardest things you've ever gone through. Life is hard, and God never takes that away from us. But in the midst of it, in the midst of it, he says, remember who I am and follow me. As we close this section of Scripture today and as we look at the fact that Ahaz Ahaz was falling because he had no faith, he didn't remember God's truthfulness, I want to encourage you today to be people of faith, to be people of truth. On this day, whether you know it or not, today is the first day of what's called Advent. And Advent is a season of time that goes from now all the way through to Christmas where basically what happens is we prepare our hearts as Christians. And this has long been lost in the Protestant church because it's not cool enough or entertaining enough. But Advent is for the purpose of setting our eyes on Jesus and preparing for the celebration of his birth. You see, because we celebrate Christ's first Advent, the word Advent, It comes from a word that means his coming. We celebrate his first coming as a child on Christmas. But all the while, we spend our time focusing on his second coming as well, that we can be assured that God is faithful and true and that he will fulfill his promises. And when he comes, guys, he will come in victory. He will come as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so today, if you're struggling with anything, whether it be internal feelings, whether it be External circumstances, I want you to remember God's faithfulness. That Circumstances might be hard. Your feelings might overwhelm you, but the truth is is that God is seated on his throne and that he is victorious. And so are you because you're one with him.